I'm Patrick Bedev, your host of IT, and in today's episode, I sit down with Freeway Rick Ross and talk about how he made nearly a billion dollars in the 80s selling cocaine, and we talk a lot about the African-American community, we talk about what the educational system is doing, and the last 40 minutes could possibly be some of the most emotional 40 minutes of podcasts you can listen to, my sit down with Freeway Rick Ross. Thanks for coming out. I mean, I'm glad to be here. It's good to have you out here, man. Wow. I mean, I'm just blown away, man. Yeah, I appreciate you for coming out. Uh, you know... I got a lot of directions I want to go. Obviously, I've seen your documentary, and I want to talk about a little bit uh, about your story for some that don't know. But there's an also an element of it that I want to talk about. That uh, are you familiar with Sammy Dubul Gravano? I heard of Sammy. Dubul. So Sammy Dubul Gravano and I spent some time together. We were having a conversation, uh, and one of the things we talked about is that 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 moment where a kid is growing up. He's innocent. She's innocent. They don't know what's going on, and then all of a sudden they make a decision a to go. They turn, huh? <laughs> and is that DNA? Is that upbringing? Is that fatherless environment? Is that is that culture? Is that you know experiences in life? I kind of want to hear what you think about well, that. But well, definitely, definitely culture. You know, uh, we have to give the environment that we brought up in a lot of credit because, uh, in my my personal humble opinion, is that uh, we are accumulation of everything we saw, heard, and been around. Uh, we take all that information and we try to come up with who we are and that's what being yourself really is but in actuality you are accumulation of everything that you've come in contact with um, and how you took that information and deciphered it to be what you thought it should be. So you do think there's some of it that affects you? I guess the part I would be curious about is how much of it is your wiring, the way you were born? How much of it is upbringing? How much of it is experiences? And what is it like, you know, a, a Rick Ross in a completely different environment, what, what direction would you go? Who would you be today? Well, well we, we can tell that now because I, I'm pretty much directing myself in the directions that I want to go in and I'm no longer allowing outside forces to, to direct who I am and, and where I'm planning on going. Uh, um, I'm old enough now and wise enough to, to make the decisions, but you know, with, with, with us as human beings, we're being bombarded with people who are trying to control our minds, uh, our bodies, um, to perform the acts that they want us to perform. I'm curious to hear about that. Well, we're, we're marketing. You know, marketing is a form of uh, convincing people to do whatever the marketer feel like they should be doing. So let me ask you, before you going into, you know, the drug route and you being introduced to it, if I was in high school with you, who was, uh, who was Rick Ross? I was a kid who thought that I was going to one day be playing in Wimbledon or U.S. Open. Um, had aspirations of being a, 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 a star tennis player, had never drunk a beer, had never smoked a cigarette, had never hit a joint. Uh, Ever? Not at that time, no. Uh, uh, totally a, a virgin, you know, all the way around, you know. Um, looking for guidance, looking for directions, you know, not knowing uh, what choices I should be making. Um, 
and had some 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 miscomings as well. You know, had some defects. What what I thought was defects, uh, uh, but wasn't necessarily de defects. Uh, was a position where I didn't understand the principles and the rules of the game. You know, it's like trying to play football and you've been taught basketball rules about life. Now, you, you, your mother was in the picture, obviously, and your father wasn't in the picture at all. No, father wasn't there. So who played the role of a father in your life? Did you have a coach? Did you have a mentor or teacher? Well, I've had many, many people come into my life and, 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 and play roles of mentor, fathers, uh, and I've adopted people, you know. Um, did I pick the right people all the time? No. Now, you went to Dorsey High School. Right. Yes. I was telling you earlier. I used to sell memberships <laughs> at Valley Total Fitness, and I would sell them at Fox Hills Mall. Which yeah. Fox Hills Mall, you know, a lot of my friends went to Dorsey High. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about Dexter, sexy Dexter. There was a guy <laughs> selling memberships. He played baseball. My memory is not really that that well from the past. I'm more of a forward-thinking guy. Like I could meet somebody last week and and if i run into them again i probably won't remember who they are you know that's one of the reasons that with me i always try to treat everybody right because if you treat them wrong you know you run into them again and you don't know how you treated them and then they'd be like uh, it's a funny story you know I, when i when i when i first got to prison um to lompoc usp lompoc and i'm walking down the hallway and this guy comes up to me and he's about six two six three and Look like he lives on the weight pile, right? He's all muscle. He looked like that statue right there. <laughs> <laughs> Almost that big too, right? <laughs> and, 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 and I'm walking down the hallway and he walks right into me. He walks right into you? Yeah. Intentionally? Intentionally. Yeah. And he was like, you don't know who I am? And I was like, no, nah, I don't know. <laughs> now, I don't know who you are, but I hope I didn't do nothing to you. And. Uh, it was just so happened that he was a young kid that, that I had met when he was about 14, 15 years old. And uh, I did right by him, and, and um, I was so glad that I had. <laughs> you were glad that you had? Yeah, I was glad that I did right by him because, um, I mean, he looked like the statue right there. You I know? mean, the one thing with you is you didn't create a lot of enemies, though. People liked you. I mean, no, even your enemies I, liked you. I hate Everybody. enemies. I don't want any enemies. Yeah. I want all friends. What was your what was your strategy for doing that? Is it just you know respect everybody? Was it a simple? You gotta respect that? everybody. I mean, if, if if you don't respect everybody, then you kind of disrespecting yourself mm. because uh, in in the big picture we're all kind of joined together. You know, it's like we're all like sales on this planet that uh, have to function with each other. You know, nobody lives on this planet uh without help from somebody else you know and and i i learned that at an early age and and that was one of my strong points you know just uh treating everybody the way that i wanted to be treated now so you're going up you're uh doing what you're doing with tennis at what point do you say i don't know if i got a career with tennis and you go a completely different direction what happened there well it was when when uh i was in the 12th grade it was getting close to being graduation time and um uh, all my friends were filling out their college papers, and, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm gonna go to college too. <laughs> and this coach is like, man, I don't think you're gonna make it in college, you know, like, um, you can't read, you can't write. Uh, you can't read, you can't write. Yeah, I couldn't read, I couldn't write. At all? At all. Zero? Zero. How did you get to eighth grade or, you know, high school without being able to read or write? This just kept passing me through, you know. Um, I would do just enough to get by. You know, I would cheat off of somebody's paper for a test, a spelling test or something like that, and, and um, it would always be just enough, you know, to get by. And, and the teachers 
uh, liked me just enough, you know, to say, you know what, I ain't gonna hold him back. I'm gonna let him go ahead. Uh, and I think a part of, of their thinking was that they didn't want to hurt me, you know, they didn't want me to be 16 years old in the first grade. <laughs> Sixteen-year-old first grader. <laughs> <laughs> you know, could you imagine that you're 16 years old and you're sitting in the first grade in little bitty chairs? So, so I felt that the teachers uh, um, had some some sympathy for me. Uh, um, you think that was a good thing? No, no, no. I mean, they could have had uh, uh, sympathy for me and say, you know what, I'm gonna spend an extra hour with him. You know, I'm gonna spend an extra 30 minutes with him, and and uh, I'm gonna keep him out the class. And, and you know, and show him what the, the, the principles that he's missing because really, uh, you know, with, with, with reading and writing and with anything almost, it's, it's almost principles, you know, learning uh, um, the fundamentals. You know, I didn't know the fundamentals of reading. I didn't know that you had to sound your words out. Uh, and it was only when I was 28 years old, I'm in prison and I'm looking at a life sentence that my celly was able to convince me that I could actually read. Yeah, I didn't believe him. At 28? Yeah, I didn't believe him, but... Uh, did he spend time with you teaching you, or was it like He did, he did. We were cellies. So, you know, I was in a... Um, we're in a maximum security facility, you know, where you're locked down most of the time. So, uh, we had a lot of time to spend together, and, and uh, you know, he saw in me that I had what it took to learn how to read. It took about two weeks. That's it? That's it. So if the teachers early on would have put that time into you, you would learn how to learn in two weeks. Absolutely. How, how, how big of a difference would that have made in your life? Oh my goodness, when, um, wow. I, I fell in love with reading when I, when, I, when I, well I'm in prison so, you know I don't have much to do. You know, you can't chase women in prison and <laughs> you can't go shoot basketball whenever you want to or football or tennis. So you, you kind of confined to this area where, uh, Reading became my favorite sport. What were some of the best favorite books you read? I know uh, I heard you read 300 books, which is which is great. But what were some of the books? My favorite seen? books is um, Richest Man in Babylon. Wow, great book! Oh my goodness, I Excellent read over 25 book. times. Richest Man in Babylon. Yes, and you remember it till today. Oh man, come on! And they had that in in prison. I bought it. I bought the books. So so when you bought the books, they send it to you. Yeah, they would send it to me. What else? The Richest Man in Babylon is an incredible book. What else would you say? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. One of the 40 million copies sold. No, 100 and some million. He didn't sold over 100 million copies. 100 million, maybe 60 million is, uh, is uh, underground, but I do, <laughs> I do the, the numbers, a high number. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So what else? What other books? Uh, Did you read Psycho-Cybernetics? I didn't read that. Okay. Because it's part that. of that same family. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, as, as a Man Think great book by James Allen it's a uh, great, another it's easy one. book right? after I read those three books I, I really didn't need to read anything else wow. I mean uh, I don't know did you get to read the article they did on me in LA magazine this is not web you're not talking about webs articles no That's this a is Jesse Cat. Jesse Cat is the guy LA Times hired to go against Gary's story remember they did a, a rebuttal to Gary's story I mean I read stories so if this is what I don't remember what oh no this is a different that? one this came after I got out of prison okay he 99 did, 99 he wrote my my what he called my obituary they said he was saying that, that the world was tired of me dreaming and, and uh, they wasn't going to be hearing from me no more. Um, but in 2013, he had to rewrite the story. And inside of that story, he was talking about when I was in prison, how he thought I'd lost my mind because I'm talking about how I'm going to be getting out and all the things I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be speaking at colleges. and uh, just, just telling him this. 
Yeah, I'm telling you, what, uh, this is what I'm going to be doing when I get out. It, how much of it is inspired by Richest Man in Babylon, Thinking Grow All Rich? All of it, all, all of it. it. Because what, what I had did, those books allowed me to go back over my life and find out how I got in prison. So, so you know, going back to the question I was asking is, what can happen to change the direction of a Rick Ross at 10? At 12, at Richest 11. man in Babylon would have changed. That's it. what I'm saying. So somebody, instead, so instead of reading uh, 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 That Was Then, This Is Now, or Mice of Man. I didn't care why Jack and Jill was going up the hill. You know what I'm saying? They weren't going to get no money. I didn't want to know about no it. No interest for it. None. Uh, but once, once I started to see that, these, these books made me go back over my life, step by step. That's how I wrote my book. That's how my first book came mm. out because I went back over my life and I started to do step by step. Well, what are you doing here? How did you get here? And when I did that, I said, well, you know what, Rick? You work your way in prison. They just didn't put you in prison. You, 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 you earned it. You earned to be here. Like, like I tell kids all the time when, you go to, when I go to the schools and speak, I say, look, you can go to the prison right now. Go to the gate. Ring the bell. Knock on the gate. They're going to come out and ask you what you want. And you ask them, can you go in? And they're going to say, no. You can't come in here. You have to go out and earn your position in federal prison. They don't just take anybody. You know, it ain't like the army where you just go sign up. No, you got to go out and earn your position. So I went out and I earned that life sentence that I got. You know, and when I figured out that I could earn it, then I figured out that I could disearn it. And uh, that's what I did. I started to work uh, just as diligently in uh, getting out of prison as I did to get in. And this leads you to stu start studying law. Start studying the law, um, politics. You know, I started studying politics. Why politics? Well, in, in, in federal prison, if, say for instance, if all the judges would have denied all my appeals, then I could have played politics to still get out. Uh, in, my, in, my, in my thinking, and, and you know, I was thinking crazy too, right? I was gonna become so smart that the jails couldn't hold me, that the people of the United States was going to cry out so loud for my freedom that uh, the jails wasn't going to be able to hold me no longer. Um, whoever the president was, Congress, they all would have been like, let him out of there. We need him on the streets. You know, we need more of him. And that was my plan. The plan was get so smart that they need you in the streets rather than in prison. Exactly. Wow. Now, if we go back, how did you get into the drug world? How did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, I just found out that I wasn't going to be going to college. Um, I didn't have any sponsors for tennis. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, you know. I saw this movie one time called Superfly where this guy had started selling cocaine and he got rich and he beat the police and everybody and I was like, wow, what a, what a great dude. <laughs> And it kind of just went over my head, you know, nothing, you know, I didn't know about the subconscious mind at that time, you know, I didn't know that you can't be giving seeds to the subconscious mind like that, you know, because it, it'll work and, and act on it. And then just one day I was just sitting on my porch and I'm contemplating like, wow, you, you got a miserable life, boy, you, you don't have gas money, you don't have no food, if your mama stopped feeding you, uh, you're done. Uh, and my friend called me and he was like, man, I got something new. And I was like, he was like, come by. And I went by and uh, he put it on the table, 
some white powder looking stuff and and I was like, what's that? And he said, oh, that's cocaine. I said, oh yeah, what you doing with that? And he was like, oh, I sell it. He said, see these gold chains? And I got it. That's how I got them. And I was like, wow. Is it really like that? And he was like, oh man, this is a new thing. And that's how I got started. How old were you at the time? Mm, 19. 19? Yeah. So how quickly after that did you start selling? Well, I started that day. That day? He gave me, uh, he gave me $50 worth to go and see what I could do with it, and I started going around asking everybody. Really, I didn't know I was marketing. You know, I'm asking everybody, hey, you know what about cocaine, and you, is this really cocaine? And finally, uh, you know, most people didn't know what it was, and then finally I found somebody who did, uh, Martin. Um, that was my first, my first getting beat. <laughs> I got beat out of that cocaine, and, uh, but that was my first sale as well. First sale and first beating? Yeah. And so you go back, and what happens there? At what point do you start scaling it? Well, uh, uh, after he, 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 he used all that cocaine that I had and didn't give me any money. Uh, but later on that day, he came back with somebody else that spent $100, and um, some of my business started. It was just, just kept going after that. So, but at what point were you like starting to make real money? When, when did you start making real money? That's 19. Uh, it, took, it, took about, it took about seven or eight months, you know, before I started to do maybe like three or four hundred dollars every day, you know, it didn't it didn't start off like a, a lot of people. Like now, you know, it's a little different now than it was when I first started. And, and even we didn't have cocaine, what they call cocaine tracks. You know, like now they have places that you can go, and they already have people who are looking for cocaine at those areas. So you could go there, and you might make. You know, like we used to have a spot that would do $50,000 in one day. You know, you could go out on the street, just stand out on the street and, and have cocaine and you might make 50000 if you can beat everybody out on the block. You know, there's other people out competing for that same money, but uh, if you were good, then you could collect all that money or most of it. And, and uh, that's how I started out, you know, but I had to build that street up myself. I built the street up and then other guys came. The street that I built up probably used to do $100,000 a day. Just that one 100K street. 100K day? Yeah, one street. Now, you don't seem threatening. You're not a big guy. You're a small guy. Why are people not bullying you out of street? You know, why are they letting you do it? Why aren't people saying, hey, get out of here, you know, or beating you up? Well, well, you have to, I mean, you have to have tact. You know, it's tactful. You have to have, be tactful, you know. And what I always do is I share with other people. You know, I, I don't take the, the, the money myself and just use it for me. You know, I like to share. And once you share with, with the other people, um, even some of them were stupid enough, though, still, you know, to, 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 to take a knife and stab the goose to slam the golden eggs, you know. But uh, the majority of the people, they have a tendency to, to at least allow the goose to live, you know. Oh, just run around, and I get an egg every now and then, you know. Uh, and, and that's pretty much the way that, that they allow me to function. And what year is this? You're saying seven months later, you're 19, 20 years old. What, what, what year you're looking at? 80. This is 80? Yeah, 80. So scaling to you having hundreds of people working for you, how long did it take to get to that point? Was there a new relationship? Was there somebody that came in? Well, most of my guys started to, to get involved. You know, like all my friends. It's, it's like when, when, when you start to find, I mean, you know, like hitting the lottery. You know, somebody hit the lottery, then all their family members want to be around, want to talk to them. Uh, um, and it's the same thing in, in the drug business, you know. Once people see you being successful, they, they want a part of it, some kind of way. You know, they usually want a handout, but uh, some of them are actually 
do a little work to get that, that handout. How were you recruiting people? I was looking for people in the same position that I was in, you know, people that um, had all the skills, uh, all the talents, but didn't know what to do with it. And conversation, what's it sound like? You talking to me, what are you telling uh, me? I could walk in the gym, you know, going to play basketball, and it might be one of the, what we call young homies who would be at the gym, and I'm gonna use one of the ones who, who testified against me. <laughs> and he said he was sitting in the gym, um, and, and when I tell his story, it seems almost similar to mine. You know, when I was sitting on the porch and didn't know what I was gonna do, well, he was sitting on the, on the stage at the gym, and he didn't know what he was gonna do, and I was like, man, what you doing with yourself? You know, you didn't make it in baseball, huh? And this kid played baseball, and uh, I was like, uh, so what you gonna do now? And he was like, I don't know. I was like, why don't you go with me? You know, we do, we do pretty good for ourselves. You know, we feeding our families, we got houses, we got cars. Uh, try this route. And uh, he got off the stage and he went with me. How quickly did he start selling? Oh, the same day. It don't take long to, I mean, you know, selling drugs is easy. A nine-year-old kid could really do it, you know, if they if they could defend themselves from from the bullies, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 simple. In in some ways, I mean, it's 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 genius, but it's also a simple trade uh, if if you know what what you're doing. I mean, really anything though is is is, is simple true. once you know it's, the rules. It's, it's amazing what you're seeing is how subconscious mind you're like I allowed that super fly message to get into my head for me to think about that. So. But at what, what point, I guess the part I'm trying to get to is, was there a relationship you got where all of a sudden you went from making three, $500 a day to making $300,000 a day? Well, um, <clears throat> first I was getting, you know, I was getting my drugs from my friend who went, who went to college, who introduced me to it. Um, and then I started dealing with a, a teacher, Mr. Fisher, who um, had a connection that I, I didn't know about. And uh, when he turned me on to the connection, I went from, I think we were buying like sevens, you know, uh, quarter quarter ounces, and um, when we started doing dealing with him and his and his uh, his friends, um, our quality got better and our price got cheaper. So it started to to escalate from there to where now we're doing thousand dollars a day, you know, and it just escalated from there to five thousand dollars a day, ten thousand dollars a day. And it got to the point to where the first one that we were dealing with, he got, uh, he got paralyzed. His wife shot him in the back. He got paralyzed. Why did his wife shoot him in the back? Was it just a fight? I don't like know. Cheating probably, you know. Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> got it. That makes sense. No telling. Yeah. I never found out the reason, but when he got paralyzed, um, his brother-in-law took over his business. His brother-in-law wasn't really, he didn't really have an appetite for it. You know, he wasn't really like a business guy. So what he did is he sold me to the Connect. He sold you to the Connect. Yeah, he sold me to the Connect, and, and he sold the Connect to me. How did that? How did that conversation? How did the introduction? <laughs> he came to me one day, and he was like, uh, he, he spoke broken English too. He was from Nicaragua, and he was like, "Man, uh, I want out of this business. I don't like this business." Uh, somebody had got busted. One of his people had got busted, and he was he was scared that they might tell. So he was like, man, I don't like this business. I want to be out, uh, but I want to introduce you to the connection. And uh, I was totally for that. And then, you know, price came up, how much? And he wanted 100 grand, but I was able to talk him down to 60 grand, where I gave him 60. Just for the connect? Just to introduce me to the connect. So and you give him the 60, you get connected, then what happens? We start booming. 
How quickly? Well, I was already, I was already, I mean, I was already ghetto rich <laughs> at that time. You know, I, I probably had a few hundred thousand dollars at that time. Um, how old are you at that time? Were you in your early 20s, 21, uh, 22? 22, 23 maybe. Okay, got it. Still young, but yeah. you know, uh, uh, up in age, you know. Um, the day we met, me and Danilo first met, uh, I think we did like 50 kilos that day. Day one? Yeah, day one. Where'd you guys meet? We already kind of knew each other, you know? Like, it's like you know somebody, but you don't, you know, like, man, I sure wish I, I could talk to him, but you know, but we had never, out of respect, you know, you can't jump over your, your connect, you know what I'm saying? It has to be done properly. So uh, I'd already knew who he was, uh, so meeting him was just like, okay, this is what I've been waiting on. So he dropped the price a couple thousand dollars as soon as we met, you know, a couple thousand per kilo. And um, I mean, you're talking about a couple, a couple thousand dollars per kilo is a lot. You know what I'm saying? You do 50 keys, that's 100 grand 100 extra. Grand. Yeah. Extra, not what you've been making, but this is 100 grand extra. So um, you start making that kind of money every single day, every single day. And, and then, you know, now some days we're doing um, 200 kilos, you know, one a day, day. A day, yeah. And each kilo you're making how much profits? 2,000, 2,500. Yeah, I mean, it's according to who comes. You know, the guys who are buying like 20, 20 kilos at a time, you're probably making like 2,000 off of them, 2,500. Who were your customers, Bob? Were most dealers your customers? Dealers, Dealers yeah. were your I customers. I was dealing with dealers. I, I kind of like created my dealers too. You know, I would, I, I had come up with a formula where I would uh, go into the community and, and by me knowing, I grew up there, so I knew all the, all the players, you know, I knew them. So I knew who would be basically what they call the influencers now. <laughs> you know, the guys who was telling people what to do, how to do it, and, and they ran their neighborhoods. Shot callers is what we used to call them. Why, why did the shot callers allow you to keep the influencer blending and not go through you to get direct to the connect? Well, they didn't know who he was. I wouldn't let him meet Blandon. So I could buy my own drug, so they never had to, to, to see Blandon. You know, when they... When Blandon would come, I had the money to buy all the drugs, and then I could take the drugs and sell them. Sell them. When they asking you like, "Hey, you know, Rick, who's the guy? Who's the guy you're getting nah, your stuff from?" Nah, they nobody weren't. was asking. Nah. Literally, nobody was asking. Mm -mm. Why weren't they asking? They were doing better than they ever thought about doing before in their life. But greed gets some people to want to go through you and you know get even a bigger contract. What they do, I mean, what wind up happening is is uh, eventually, you know, when these guys become millionaires and then other dealers come into the city. And, and that's why the price went down so low. You know, before I went to prison, uh, first kilo I bought, I think I paid like 48000 for it. The first whole kilo I bought. But now, when I was buying ounces, I was paying 3300 for one ounce. So you're talking about if you do uh, 33 times 36, you're talking about paying something like 100 and something per kilo. And when I first started buying my first kilo, I paid 48. So the price was substantially sure. yeah, lower yeah. at that time. Uh, but before I quit, the last kilo I bought was like 9,500. Get out of here. Yeah. From 100 plus, <coughs> 48 to 9,500. Yeah, so that shows you how, how much the, the price came down. And this is during the height of the war on drugs. So even though the Reagan war- Reagan era. Yeah, the war on drugs was going full steam ahead. The price of the cocaine was going down, which was making it more accessible to more people. How are you staying low-key at this time? 
Uh, I just dressed the way I always dress, you know. I, I didn't need any jewelry. Uh, I, I came to a, a point in my life to where um, I didn't need to show anybody what I was doing, you know, who I was or how, how, um, how I wanted to be perceived. So you take me the way I am or, or leave it. <laughs> did you ever watch American Gangster? I did. You, so when you watch it, what did you think about it? Uh, they were pretty close, you know. It wasn't bad on mine. Uh, I enjoyed some of the other guys on, on there that I watched, uh, and I learned lessons from them as, as well. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's like a lesson, you know, you, you, can, you can take lessons from it. Uh, but on my particular uh, documentary, matter of fact, you know, I'm working with Reginald Hutland right now, the guy who did and greenlit American Gangster series for BET. Uh, we're working together right now on my movie. So, on your movie? Yeah, so I felt pretty good about the, the job that he did. Uh, he was pretty fair, you know. He didn't uh, he didn't slam me, you know, uh, the way uh, he could have, I guess. Now you and Frank have done events together. Yeah, we did. When he was alive. Yeah, I mean, we did an event together. How was that when you saw Frank? Like, what's the conversations like? Well, there was no conversations. We we had a little conversation. Uh, me and Frank are kind of different people, you know. Frank was more grittier than I was, I think. You know, he. He treated people a little different than, than I treat people. I didn't really like the way he, he talked to people, uh, as if he put himself on a pedestal. And, and I don't believe that any of us should be on a pedestal. I don't care how much money you got. Uh, I don't care what your last name is, you know, what movie you played in. You just like me, you know, you got to go to the bathroom and take a piss, just like I do. How, how did you stay <coughs> humble and all that? I mean. You got $300 million of net profits in the 80s. What's the most cash you ever had to yourself? Cash. Uh, I had like $3.2 million cash counted. Um, I still had money on the street. Uh, that's the most cash I ever had. $3.2 million. Yeah. Got it. So and then you got cash on the street that's doing its work. You're making your money. You're living large. People at that time sometimes are tempted to do crazy things. What was your vice? I didn't want to go to prison, you know? And I knew that if I would do something stupid, uh, you know, like maybe somebody owed, like a couple people owed me, like one guy owed me like 360000 and my guys want to go and drag him out the house and demolish him, right? And I'm like, okay, okay, let's talk about it first. Because <laughs> you got a good point. <laughs> now, I take your point in, in consideration, but let's say we do that. And then we kill him. Then homicide going to come in, and they're going to be investigating, and they're going to try to figure out who did it. And... Maybe they won't find out it was us. Maybe they will. Maybe they're just suspicious that it was us and they come and arrest us. How much is that going to cost? How much bail going to cost? You know, then one of them was saying, oh, probably about 50000 each one of us. And then uh, what Alan Fenster going to cost to fight the case? Um, he probably going to want $80,000. I said, okay, so it's six of us in here. That's 50 each. You know what I'm saying? So that's 300000 plus Alan's. 80 just for one, and then we got to get everybody else lawyers. Um, we ain't gonna get that money back. So were you a math guy? We, if you were not, if you couldn't read or write, I love math. It's very obvious. I mean, you're just doing math right in front of me, talking to me. Yeah, I love math. Math. I think math and math and science is really all we need. You know, if you can do math and science. Uh, Why do you say that? Well, you know, the, the art of science is is breaking things down to figure out their their origins or. or what it's going to do, you know, in the future, you know, like when you plant a seed in the ground, you, you, you are looking for it to perform a certain function in the future. And that's pretty much what um, 
what life is about, you know. Uh, the thing that I think that I do well is I can take what's going on today and, and see what's going on, what's going to happen tomorrow. You can take what's going on today and see what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, I can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Like I can go to a street and I can look at the street and I can pretty much predict what type of building should be there, uh, what neighborhoods is going to be there. You know, I, I don't know where I get it from, but I can just do it. And I do the same thing with people. You know, I can look at a person and I can kind of tell, like, this is what you should be doing. I'm telling you. You might not listen to me, but that's, that's your calling. Interesting. Interesting. So your, your vice at the time when you're coming up, it's, it's what? It's purely women? Because you're not using drugs yourself. No. Did you ever try crack, cocaine, any of that? or no? I tried crack a couple times. Uh, I think I might have used for about a week straight. You know, when I, when I got to an ounce, right? Uh, I got to an ounce, I think I'm rich. An ounce at that time was worth about 9,000, broke down, you know, to the, la to the last term, you know, you sell every, every 20. Uh, you make about 9000 So I, when I got my first ounce, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm there, baby. I, I, I made it. And I'm thinking I'm rich, right? <laughs> and so my cousins, who, who I didn't really understand addiction at that time. You didn't understand addiction at that no, time? No, I didn't. They were already using. And they was like, well, man. They're older than you? Uh, yeah, right. we all around the same age. Maybe a year, you know, one or two of them. Some of them were a little younger. Um, they convinced me to, to try it. Like, man, you've been doing all this sacrificing, you, you got all that. You know, I got like a little pile, a little handful of dope. Oh, you got all that dope, now you might well try it and see what everybody else like. And I was like, because it, it does get curious. Uh, and that brings me to another one of my points. I believe that our dope problem centers around people trying to make money. It doesn't center around people trying to be drug addicts. Most people who, who use drugs right now don't start off to be drug addicts. They start off trying to be hustlers and they fall victim to their own product. So um, when we sitting there, they convinced me to try it. And I tried it, ah, not too bad. Uh, lucky for me though, I got sick. And by me being an act athlete, I was like, man, you know you weren't supposed to be doing that. And all of the older guys who who I was selling to had already told me, if you don't use, you're gonna get rich. So when if I- If you don't use, you're going to get rich. If you don't use. So when I finish and I come up out of this, this, this coma that I'm in, this drug high coma that I'm in, I might have had $300. And I was like, no, Rick, this is not what you got into this for. You're never using again. I told myself that. You're never gonna use again. And I just never did. Interesting. I started smoking weed though later on. Later on? Yeah. How old? Mm, probably six months later. Six months later? Yeah. Permanently, regularly? Yeah, every day. So weed is a regular thing for you? Not now, no. Then, I mean, it was then, yeah. Okay. Got well, it. now I do edibles. Now you do edibles? I do edibles, yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, what's the biggest difference for you? Edibles versus smoking it? Cheaper. Cheaper. Like you eat the edibles, you stay high all day. <laughs> 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 I can buy uh, like a bag of edibles. Yeah. Uh, I buy a bag of edibles for like 15 bucks, and that lasts me for a week. A bag of edibles? Yeah, like I might take one, one, uh, they got these little uh, chewies, and uh, I'm gonna I'm do my own chewies too, for vegans. So, and they got vegan chewies too. So I'll get, I'll get a bag of those, and I'll take one every day, or you know, if I wanna go to, some days I don't do it, and I do it at night when I get ready to go to bed, and, and it just puts me in this space where, uh, 
it allows my mind to kind of like drift down a little bit because one of the things about me is is my mind is constantly going. You know, it, it never stops. It never, it never rests. It's just like all the time coming up with this idea, that idea, this formula. You know, and and sometimes I like to like shut it down. You know, like just relax it and try to calm it down. Interesting. And it helps. So so you're on fire. You're doing great things. Now, are you guys using force at that time? Are you guys like, you know, the whole killing thing? Is that happening or not? No, really? That's not your kill, world. Kill no more. For what? No. For no, now you guys got guns because Blandon's oh, bringing no, no, guns. Oh, no, no, no. We, we, got, we got artillery, but it's self-defense. Purely self-defense. Yeah, well, you figure, you know, you run around L.A., you're doing, you know, two and three million dollar cocaine deals every day. Every day I'm doing it. So every day we're carrying duffel bags of money. You know, I'm talking about like... Those big army bags. How is it that your your net profits in the eighties was three hundred million, but the max you ever had was three point two million? Three point two million is not a lot of money. Are you spending a lot? Are you uh, buying a lot of property? I'm spending. Uh, I got a lot of people that 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 is eating off the plate too. You know, it's not just me eating. Uh, I, I probably my 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 average profit every day was about two hundred three hundred thousand per day. Per day. So how do you have how do you have only three point two million? Well, you spend. I, I got but, property. But you're not buying cars, though. You're no, I'm not buying, buying property. Car. Oh, you're buying property. I got cars too. I got cars. Not not personal cars. You know, I got cars because when you're in the drug business, you you, you want to switch cars. I probably at that time I probably had about twenty five, thirty cars. But, but not your name. No, not in my name, and they not fancy cars. They just switch cars. You know, like a car you 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 drive because you don't want nobody to know what you drive. So you're all strategy at that time. Yeah, all strategy. Well, it wasn't it wasn't a time for play. You know, Got this it. was all work. Um, I was building motels. You know, I had a motel. And I think I built my motel. I was like 22 years old when I built my first motel. Because my mom kicked me out of the house. She found out I was selling drugs, so she kicked me out. So now I'm living in motels. And I was like, wow, these motels, $45 a night, and I can't get a room. You know, I'm standing outside the hotel room, and they don't have no rooms. And, you know, I got $100,000 in my pocket, but I can't get a hotel room. And I was like... That room can't be that expensive to build, you know, why don't you build one? And um, I started and I built a motel and uh, before I got arrested, I was in the process of building like three more. And, and that's really where I spent my money, you know, buying houses, you know, I would be driving down the street and I see a house that uh, was abandoned, boarded up, and I'd be like, oh, I'm gonna buy that and fix it up. This house should look like this. And, and At the max, how many properties did you own? Max, max. Probably about 30. 30 properties, mm-hmm. max. Yeah, if I would have had all my properties right now that I had, I'd probably be worth about $150, $200 million right oh, now. Oh, a commercial property. You're not talking about regular, like homes. Oh, no, I didn't buy a home for myself. Okay. I didn't want a home yet. You, so you're living out of what? You're living out of an apartment or you're living? Apartments, houses. One of my places, you know, I, w- I would have, um, my girlfriends had houses. You know, I bought them their houses. But it wasn't the kind of house that, that I saw myself living in forever. You know, it was like, you know, a nice neighborhood, you know, just a nice house, you know what I'm saying? But they were young too, you know, 22 years old, 21 years old. They, they got a house and their mama didn't have a house, you know, mm-hmm. so um, they and, felt good about themselves. And at this point you're running in 42 cities? Is that the right number? Is it about 42 cities? Not me personally. I probably, I probably personally did about you know, six or seven maybe. Eight. Six or seven? Yeah. How come you don't want to scale? Did you have any desire of scaling, going into a different state, going to Nevada, going to New Mexico, Arizona? It's hard to do it, you know, by yourself, you know. Um, 
it's crazy and, and you know, I, I don't don't really wanna, you know, be, be dumping on my friends, but uh I was almost like I was doing everything myself. You know, when when uh, when I was sitting in prison and I was like, you know, your guys ain't sending you no money. Your guys ain't looking out for you. And I was a little mad at them, you know, like, wow, I come in here, you know, I, uh, didn't say nothing about nobody, kept my mouth shut, nobody got arrested, but uh, nobody really, like, looked out for me. You know, the, the only person really came and seen me was my mom. My girlfriends came, you know, the first couple months, you know, but, but they, they wore out fast. Um, so then now you find yourself, you're in prison by yourself, you know, nobody, and you start to, like, analyze your company, you know, the people that you, you kept company with, and you like, why aren't they doing more for me? You know, why aren't they trying to help me accomplish my missions? You know, um, and as I analyzed them, I started to see defaults, you know, things that they didn't have. And um, it was almost like I was kind of like propping them up, you know. Um, matter of fact, I had a speech with them a couple weeks ago and, and I was telling them it's like, that sometimes I feel like I'm working with the bad news bears, you know, the guys who can't, can't run, <laughs> can't bat, they can't run. It's like, wow, man, when you do, it's gonna pick your ax up. And uh, it's hard to find good people. I mean, you know how that Who's is. Who's friends with you till today? Out of the guys you all ran with? All my friends, all my friends. Out of the guys you ran with? All of them. I can call any one of them right now if I need, whatever, they'll do whatever for me. So the same guys didn't show up are still friends till today with you? Yeah, and, 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 and when I say they didn't show up, it, it, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing that they didn't show up, they just didn't know. They just didn't know that they should be showing up. They didn't know, like the other day I was talking to, 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 to my friends and my families and I was telling them like, I work right now so that if my friends need my help, I wanna be in a position to where I can help them. They would help me if they could, but they can't because they're not putting themselves in a position to be able to, if that makes any sense. So you don't put any of it on them. You're not even putting in any of it on them. You don't have any, you have zero expectations of human beings in the world. Is kind that a fair statement? Kind, yeah, pretty, pretty fair statement. And because of that, you're relaxed, you're free, you're happy. Nobody can disappoint you. No, they can't. No one can disappoint you. No. Were you always like this, or did you work to get to this point? I don't know. I, I don't know if it, it, those books kind of, you know, reading all those books kind of like put me in a space that, um, you know, we're supposed to pursue knowledge as as human beings, and and those books allow me to to really like break down everything. You know, it, it's almost like this book right here. You know, this book right here, this, 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 this book is, is it's gonna be amazing. Uh, this book is about my first six months out of prison. And the guy who, who, who wrote it with me, Coley, he, he started writing me when I was in prison, when I was here in Texarkana prison. And he was like, man, I wanna put you on the cover of my magazine. I said, okay, I like that idea. <laughs> um, so I got out, he flew me to New York, we did the interview, and, you know, and so he was like, man, I wanna be around you more. I also told him about those three books. I was like, man, how you an entrepreneur? You ain't read these three books. You ain't no real entrepreneur, you, you faking the game. So he read the books. 
So when he came out to 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 hang out with me, because I really didn't have no friends. I mean, my old friends was there, but you know they're homeless and, and. How old are you at this time? I got out when I was forty nine. Forty nine. Yeah. yeah. This is September 29th. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, we riding around and and I I look at him and he keeps jotting down in this in this notebook. And I was like, man, what are you doing? Every time we come out of meeting, you always jotting down in, in the book. He was like, oh, I was just documenting the meeting. And I was like, Cody, you've been documenting every single day, everything that I've been doing? He was like, yeah, man, I like the way you work those principles. I said, Cody, that's a book. I said, everybody gonna wanna know how I was using these principles and how I took the stuff that I got out of the richest man in Babylon and think and grow rich and as a man think along with my past experiences and 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 came up with another strategy for myself. I said, man, that's a book. And that's how this book came about. Yeah, interesting. Riding with Rick. <laughs> Riding with Rick. And that's the name he's of documenting. It. He he documented it for six months. So did you ever have a moment where you kind of sitting out there saying, man, I don't know how much good we're doing. I may be making my friends money. There's a part in the documentary where one of your friends talks about when the baby was born and the doctor asks, did you ever use crack, cocaine? He says, no. Then he asks the wife, you know, and he says, I'm holding my baby and she's got a scar. Every time I see the scar, it's a reminder of me. He says, that's the day when I decided to stop doing any, selling anything. Right. Did you ever have an experience like that? Because he tells a story about a 10 year old comes to his door because he wants some some crack cocaine, and he was sold to drugs by a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. Did you ever have a guy like you that's very calculating, you're a thinker, you're, you don't like to use violence because of your mom killing your uncle, George, when right. you were younger, right in front of you with a gun because he Absolutely. hit her one time with a stick over and she lost her eye. No, you got right? it. <laughs> so, what, are you in this point at ever sitting there saying, dude, I may be making a lot of money, but I'm hurting a lot of people. Did you ever have that moment? It took a while before because in the beginning, it was all about everybody making money. And there were no crackheads. If, if, if you can just vision, can you vision everybody that's smoking crack got enough money to pay for it at first? One of the worst things about it is that you can't get enough. You're not gonna OD, but you're not gonna get enough. I mean, if you sit here and you got 4,000, not gonna be enough for you. You're gonna keep going, keep going until the whole four thousand is gone. It's it's just it's like their mentality of of people who use crack. They want to burn up all their money. Uh, when when I first started, it was really crazy. You know, you would hear people saying, "Yeah, I blew, I blew five hundred last night," and I'd be like, "What? You blew five hundred dollars?" So the main thing was it in the beginning was they weren't sleeping on the street. They were prostituting. Uh, uh, when did that happen, though? I mean, it wouldn't. It took a couple long. years. It Even took a couple years later, though. Like, did you have? I guess what I'm trying to find out from you is, from from that perspective, is, are you purely a logical guy, where you know you're, you're cold to the point where I don't see any of this stuff? Oh I, no, no, I started. That's to, not you. I saw how you got started to see it. Your kids. I, I started to see it, but it took a while to see it. You know, you just don't what see it. What was the first time? What was the first time where you're like, oh, we're actually hurting people? Well, the first time that, that I really, uh, well, let me say, let me say this here. Um, I started to feel like a hypocrite. 
is when I noticed that I started to change my mindset. Because at first, I used to give it to my girlfriend. I used to give it to my brothers to get high. You know, I had enough. Here, go, go get high. You, you can't smoke all the cocaine I got. So here, go, go, go get high. But it came to a point to where I no longer would give them cocaine. And then I didn't want them getting high anymore. So at that point that I knew it was addictive. Once I knew that I didn't want my family getting high, then I started to understand what I was doing to other people's families. You know, um, I didn't want my girl, my brothers, my sisters, my mom, my, my aunties getting high. And I didn't feel that it was right for me to be selling cocaine to other people's family members. Did you stop at that time? Was it kind of like a, a few months later? You know, you don't you don't just kick the habit. You don't go cold turkey. Most people don't uh, not able to go cold turkey just immediately. How much of it to get away from it? You think it's knowing that you can outsmart anybody? Is it kind of like to the point where I think I'm invincible? I think I can outsmart anybody. I think I'm strategically smarter than these guys. Was it? Yeah, I felt like that too. You know, I didn't feel that the police could could catch me. I thought that I could stay ahead of the police. Um, I could stay ahead of the streets, you know, the, the guys who do the robbing, and, and yeah, you feel like that, you know. Uh, but I quit. I quit about a year before I went to prison, you know. Is this um, when you went to Ohio? To yep. Cincinnati. But after after I came back from Ohio, because I well, started back selling. Back. I started back selling when I was in Ohio. Because you went, came back here, trying to uh, uh, trying to you were trying to buy the motels, and I think you were trying to do some of the real estate stuff. Yeah, I was already doing that though when I was selling the drugs. The drugs financed the, the, the real estate, but when I went to Cincinnati, I went to, to just chill out, and then I started back selling drugs. So um, that was part of me trying to pull away. You know how you you're trying to pull away, but you you, you just don't do it. It, it took um, Cincinnati getting in trouble in Cincinnati. Uh, one of my guys got caught at the bus station, and uh, uh, I did everything I could for him, and he still got 20 years. Uh, so that was when I was like, you know what, this is the time. Did they, did, were they the ones that rat you out first, ratted you out for Cincinnati, or no? Like, how did they find out about who's behind this entire... He didn't rat me out. He, the, the one who got caught and got the 20, he didn't. Uh, but the guy who was on the stage that I was telling you about earlier, mm -hmm. he did. When I quit Cincinnati and went back, what they did is they went and started working all of my connections. You know, I had houses down there, I had cars. Because when I left, I just left my houses and cars and everything. I, I didn't take no furniture out. You know, I just, just left the place. And what they did is they went back and they started using all of my, uh, all my resources and all my connections and everything. So um, one of them started messing with a DA agent that eventually uh, busted him. No connection to Blandon? No, no. Uh -uh. So this time you and, you and Blandon are still good. You're we still doing business regularly. Yeah. He is financing what he's doing for the Freedom Fighters, the whole CIA conspiracy. Yeah. You know, with Nicaragua, he's doing what he's doing. He's being allowed to do what he's doing. What, what happens for you to get caught and go to prison first time? Uh, they told on me. They got busted down in Cincinnati, and uh, when they got busted, uh, they threw me in in in, uh, in operation. It, I mean, it's, it was pretty easy, you know. I mean, it's pretty easy for what, how the feds work, you know. The feds can work off of uh, almost what they call circumstantial evidence. Uh, the way they do it is is they draw they draw a picture, and they will explain to the jury that this picture is not going to be totally complete. 
you know, it wasn't captured on, on film. It was just a picture that was drawn. And in this picture, there's going to be elements that's not going to be totally complete. But it's going to be enough of a picture to where you can emphasize. And as a jury member, you're allowed to emphasize. So what they did is they came up with evidence. First, they proved that, that I was in Cincinnati. You know, they had like some uh, rental agreements and one had my fingerprints on it. Uh, I also had a fake ID from Cincinnati. Uh, they had that. Um, then all the guys that had got arrested stayed in my general area, you know, showing that we were friends, that we were connected. Um, then they would show the jury that you can believe that this guy really knows Rick. And if you believe what he's going to say about Rick is true, then you can convict Rick of what he said Rick did. And, and they were talking about, oh, I was with Rick one day and he sold 10 keys and he sold it to this guy, Ronnie B, and uh, he, he sold five to this guy, Jerry, and, you know, and so forth and so on. And he went to New York one time, I went with him and we picked up, we stayed at this hotel uh, one night and, and we did this deal. And, and that's how they, they, they built their case up. So now how much time did you do the first time? I did uh, five years and like four months. Five years and four months. Yeah. When you get out, do you have any cash still left? No, I really got out. I was broke. I think I think I had a couple pieces of property left. I still had the theater uh, that I was trying to build. Uh, what else? I had what a city was that in? Which theater? Los Angeles. W which part? In Crenshaw or? Uh, right off of Crenshaw, yeah. It By the mall? No, not by the Crenshaw. It was right down the street from the Crenshaw. Oh, Mall. okay, got it. Crenshaw and Adams is where it was Crenshaw at. Crenshaw and Adams, got yeah. it. On the other side, not by the mall. No, right by, um, right by the freeway, right by the 10th freeway. You know, the first speech I ever gave was at the Sizzlers by Crenshaw Mall. I don't know if you remember the Sizzlers by Crenshaw Mall. I right don't. by the theater. Because there's the theater, then Magic, if you, uh, uh, the theater right on, first message I gave. Yeah. I was 21 years old. I got, I got out of the military. It was a Sizzlers. <laughs> I was nervous as hell. I got up and spoke, and the guy asked me to give a I don't a even message. know a Oh, you know what? A Sizzlers used to be on uh, Overheel. I mean, right. visually, I can tell you exactly where it's at and where I parked the car. Yeah, I'm trying to picture where I drove where, my Mitsubishi Eclipse. I'm trying to think of where Sizzlers. It had to be behind the mall, like, right? It was behind the mall. Okay, Like, yeah. it wasn't at all by it. It was completely behind the mall. Yeah, I know what you're talking this about. This was a 99, though. We're talking about... 20 years ago, yeah. right after the military. I just went to prison. 99? Oh, no, 99, no, no. I, I'd been 89, there for you went to, eight, yeah, 89 is, is yeah. when I went on the first. So you do five years and a few months, you get out. When you get out, now what happens? This is when I'm going to live a clean life, I'm not going to do nothing, and then you get back yeah, into I'd it. Yeah, I'd already came up with a few strategies uh, um, of what I could do. My, my, my plan was to go into music business. I still had the theater. Uh, I felt that this theater would be like the, the Apollo. Because, uh, you know, when I, when, when I started to analyze my life, I looked at it, I could have been the king of hip-hop. You know? King of hip-hop? Yeah, I could have been the king of hip-hop. What do you mean by that? Well, I had, I had the opportunities to, to do deals with some of the biggest people ever in hip-hop. 80s? In the 80s, yeah. Kind of like what Shook did? Yeah, but before Shook. But, okay, so like N.W. And, and maybe Craig. even bigger than Shook. Because this, so? this was before, yeah, yeah, I had money before Russell had money. You know, I remember when Russell was running around L.A. with, with LL Cool J and, uh, and Run DMC, and he didn't have no money. Um, and he was looking for money, you know, and I could have went to him and gave him money. Which one, which one of the hip-hop guys in L.A. knew you? I know, I know Warren G. was 
you know, maybe an well, associate or friend. I knew him before, before 1G. This was before 1G. This was like DJ Pooh, Dr. Dre, when, when they were barely, barely being known. Um, at that time, the hot, the hot rappers was like King T, um, Master Spade, Tiny hey, T. Master Spade talked about you. The whole $300 into $900. Yeah, he talked yeah, about you. yeah. So, so I was right there when, when those guys were first learning how to work the drum machines. And, um, and then I also had the other end where I knew the guys who were distributing music. You know, I knew Otis Smith, I knew Dick Griffey, uh, I met Barry Gordy one time. Um, so it would have been very easy for me Why don't to, you do it? Why don't you get into it? Well, well I did. You know, I gave Otis Smith 600000 to do Anita Baker's first album. But I still had my foot inside the dope game and I wasn't really, like, putting my energy into the music. I didn't really understand that where music was going at that time. You know, I couldn't see that, that, uh, uh, that hip-hop was going to blow up. And, and I'm also listening to, to Otis and Dick and these guys who were telling me that uh, hip-hop was a fad, that it wasn't going to be a They told you hip-hop is a fad? They told me hip-hop was a fad. Literally? Literally, yeah. That's, wow. they, they are the reason that I'm not the king of hip-hop. Unbelievable. That I listen to them, because they had platinum and, and gold albums. You know, I think Otis had found Rick James and Bobby Womack and Johnny Taylor and Dick Griffey, you know, he found Babyface and uh, Midnight Star. Midnight Star? Midnight yeah. Star, you mean like Reggie Calloway? Yeah, yeah, Dick Griffey found Jay King, some of these names. Yeah, You remember Dick Griffey. Jay King, Club Nouveau? Yeah, I know Jay. I got Jay number in my phone. <laughs> I, I sold Jay an insurance policy 15 years ago. Is that right? <laughs> Jay and I, Jay one, Jay one time says to me, he says, hey, I said, Jay, what do you want to do? He says, you want to sell some policies? I said, I do. He took me, Jay took me to, uh, if he's listening to this, he's going to crack up. We went to Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. We sat down. LL Cool J came. Shug was there. I said, Jay, I can't sell a policy to Suge Knight. No one's going to sell Suge Knight a policy. <laughs> <laughs> but Jay yeah, I, I met Suge when he first got started. How was he? Was he a tough guy? Was he rugged or no? Was he? I believe he took a lot of Harry O's uh, traits and a lot of Harry O's ideas of how to, uh, to really do the business. Uh, me and Harry were cellies when we were in prison. And uh, I was there when he told David Kenner, uh, it was me, him, and David Kenner sitting in the attorney room, and he was like, uh, I'm going to teach you how to make more money than you ever would have made uh, doing law. And I was sitting right there with him. Interesting. So, so, so now you're out, okay? Five years, few months, you're out. You're getting back into it pretty quickly. Or are you kind of taking a break from it? Uh, from, from what, the drug business? The drug business. Oh, no, I don't, I'm not doing no drugs. At all? At all. And then how does Blandon come in? How, how does that whole... Well, he started calling me the same day I got home. I guess, you know, DA probably told him, okay, we're letting him out today. Get started. So uh, uh, what I'm doing now, I'm running around. And, and my, my goal now is because I saw Death Row. I saw Harry O and Shook did Death Row. So uh, I'm working on the music industry. I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, While you're creating your youth center, because I know you were creating right, a youth center. Right, I was doing right. the youth center. Uh, and that was a whole little strategy, too, that, that I put together. The youth center was going to be, it could be a youth center slash concert hall where all the rappers, um, my, my, my theater would have held like 4,000 people. 4,000 people? And yeah, it had a stage big enough to put like four cars on it. 4,000 people? It was 40,000 square foot building. That's a good size. 
Yeah, I paid a million. What did I pay for that? A million too? With what money though? You said you came out, you didn't have money. No, I had bought it before I went to prison. Oh, got it, got it. So that's one of the, one of the properties you still had. Yeah, I still had okay. that. And I paid, I've been paying for that $6,000 a month while I was in prison to keep it. Because I put, I put 900000 down on it and I still owe 300000 And the way that the, the thing I wrote up, because my girl finished the deal, I didn't finish the deal. I, I started buying it and I got arrested in, in between me buying it and, and, and finishing the deal. So she allowed them to write the paperwork up for, for $6,000 a month, which, which was too much. I shouldn't have been paying that much. So the whole time I was in prison, I was paying $6,000 a month on a, on a building. So when I got out, my intention was to create like a West Coast Apollo for rappers. And it was on Crenshaw and Adams. So what I saw is this grand place where every rapper in the country would be saying, man, I want to go to Rick's place. What year is this now? 94. 94? Yeah. So did you have any runnings with Tupac? I never met Pac. Pac, I, I didn't meet Pac because I, I, I was messing with Rodney and Joe Cooley. I knew Rodney and Joe Cooley. And uh -huh. when I got out, Pac and Cooley, Pac and Joe had just had words. And so before I met Pac, Joe was telling me that that um, that he had just dissed him or something. You know, Pac dissed him at one of the shows. So I didn't have no no uh, no intentions on going to meet Pac. You know, it was like if we meet, we meet. But I'm not pursuing uh, uh, a meeting with Pac. He knows he knows of you at the time, obviously. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he did. Um, so you're trying to do this part. Blandon calls you. He keeps following up with you. Then what happens? Well, he, he's trying to get me to do a drug deal. You this know, is he, you and Chico. Well, this is before before Chico came in the picture. Got Chico it. came in the picture later. He had been trying to get me before Chico had even came in the picture. Chico came in the picture because uh, one of my old friends, uh, um, Chris, who had um, had been one of my main guys when I sold cocaine, had had came by and he was like, "Yeah, man." Uh, um, my young boy, he's like, my young boy Rick, you probably remember him. He was young when you left the streets. You know, he's doing good now. He got a studio equipment and blah, blah, blah. Chris had just got out of jail too, from Texas. He was out on bail. Um, and he was saying, uh, you need to hook up with him because he's doing the music thing too. He got all the equipment and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, cool, hook us up. So he hooked us up. And matter of fact, the day that Blandon, that Chico met Blandon, we were coming from Dick Griffey's office doing a record deal. When you met with uh, Blandon? Right, so what we did, we was coming from Dick Griffey's office, Blandon called me, I was like, oh man, let's just go by there and get a couple burritos from his restaurant, and uh, you know, we ain't gotta buy no food today. And uh, so we really stopped by to do that, and then he started talking about cocaine, and um, Chico was like, man, let me do it, let me do it. And, um, How much after that did he do it? I know it's a three hundred thousand dollar deal or three fifty somewhere. No, it was there. supposed to be a million dollar deal. It was supposed to be a million dollar deal. The three hundred thousand was just a down payment. On a million dollar deal. Correct. Ten thousand per. Yeah, one hundred kilos. Million dollar deal, ten thousand per. So, so is it that day? Is that the day when the deal was made? And everybody showed up or no? No, no, no. It took a couple weeks after that. You know, he kept probably about two or three months. After Were you paranoid at all? Why is this guy keep following up or no? I didn't really. You, you, you know what, 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 what I credit myself. Um, it's almost like a drug addict who's trying to kick the habit. And, you know, you keep dangling 
come on, man, just try one time. Yeah, come on, come on. And, and I look at it that that's what eventually happened to me because m my whole intention was to never sell drugs again, to never be involved with, with a drug deal again. Uh, so you promised your kids. You said, I'm, I'm not going to touch it again. I promised my kids and I promised myself, too. You know, just like I did when I said I was never going to use again. But... Uh, uh, what I notice now is that I had never totally ruled out never selling drugs, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I still had, I still had some things, you know, like, oh, if my kid get hit by a car and they need a surgery for 50000 I'm going to get that 50000 I don't care how I got to get it, you know. And um, I almost looked at the theater as if it was almost that important to me as like one of those kids. That was kind of like my last stronghold that I had from the game, you know, that I felt would have given me a boost in life that um, that I wanted. Walk me through the day of the event, the day where the FBI and everybody comes. Like, what was they like, the day like? Well, it started off with us uh, getting on the 405 freeway, going to San Diego. Um, Danilo didn't want to do the deal in L.A. I would have beat this case if I would have stayed in L.A. My lawyer told me that if I would have stayed in L.A., that he would have won this case for me. I would have got acquitted. If you would, why is that? Why in L.A.? Well, I would have had some black jurors. Got it. He said that blacks would have never convicted me of this crime that they, that they had me. They had, they had me, they had tape recordings where he's dangling the price. Oh, it's 17000 a kilo. Oh, it's 14000 a kilo. Oh, it's 12000 a kilo. Oh, it's 11000 a kilo. So those are all inducements to induce you into, which is illegal. They're not supposed to. The, 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 the law is supposed to be to catch criminals. It's not for to entrap a law-abiding citizen. But the people who wrote the laws were smart enough to know that innocent people can be duped into doing a crime. You know, right. Say, for instance, if, if you know, somebody's been walking for two or three days and they walk down the street and this guy's like, hey, man, there's some keys in that car. And you never even thought about the car. But now he just put that on your mind. That's inducement. That's inducement. Yeah. And it's entrapment. So 17, 14, 12, 11, 10. Yep. And uh, at 10, I broke, you know. Um, what would, what would you have made on that deal? On a million dollar deal, 100 kilos, how much would you have made? Uh, I think they were going to give me 50000 I mean 150000 each for setting the deal up, for hooking them up. Or they were going to pay you. I got it. So you're not part of it. Kind of like you paid the other guy 60k. You, they would have paid you 150k here. Correct. I got it. So Chico's going to do the deal. He's doing a million dollar deal. You're not involved. Well, technically I wasn't. But, uh, I mean, going by federal law, I was. I ate and abetted. With aiding and abetting, if, if I know you're doing a dope deal and I hand you the keys to my car and you go to do that dope deal, then technically I just ate and abetted you in that Got crime. It. Got it. So now what happens? Blanding comes. Well, we, we get to San Diego. Does he seem nervous? Is he... I, I couldn't tell, you know, because I hadn't done a dope deal. I've been out of the game for seven years now. You know, I haven't done a dope deal in seven years, so I'm totally out of my element. 
uh, and, and it's crazy, you know, people might not understand what that means, but it, it's like when you haven't done something for a while, you're not practicing the way that you always practice. I mean, your timing is off. You know, it's just not, it's not you. You're not the same person you used to be. So we get there. Um, it was nighttime. We was planning on doing the deal as soon as we got there. And he's, oh, no, I can't get to the, to the, to the, to the warehouse right now. We, we got to do it first thing in the morning. So we wind up having to get a house, I mean, get an apartment and spend the night there. Um, I was still on parole, too. Um, wasn't supposed to be in San Diego. That was a violation for me to even be in San Diego. Um, so we woke up the next morning. Um, we went and met with him at a Denny's. He asked for the money. Um, I told him we want to see the drugs. Um, he had this white guy with him who was, who was a, um, a DA agent posing, you know, as, as another one that connects. Chico handled the money. They told us where the car was. Uh, Danilo handed me the keys to the car. Uh, I threw the keys to Mike. Mike jumped in the car. Uh, I opened up the back of the car and looked at the boxes where the, where the kilos were supposed to be. Uh, I saw some packages that looked like kilos. They were wrapped in tape and everything like normal. And uh, I told Chico, okay, everything good. Uh, I jumped back in my car and I commenced to taking off. Uh, when I pulled out, this car tried to cut me off. And I swerved and went around it, not really paying any attention. But then when I got up a little ways further, two black and white police cars blocked the intersection. Uh, so I had to swerve, turn from missing them, and I knew it was a setup from there. I looked back in my rearview mirror. I saw him had Chico and, uh, and Curtis out the car, uh, spread it out, you know, handcuffing him. And uh, I saw him have Mike, and then I saw Danilo standing on the side uh, with the DEA, you know, laughing and, and, you know, like a job well done. What are you thinking at that time while you're driving? Unbelievable, you know. Uh, I'm looking at a life sentence without the possibility of parole. You know, I knew the law because I saw other guys um, get the same thing. At that time, I had a conviction from Cincinnati and Texas. So it looked like, in my mind, I was a three-striker. I thought I was a three-striker. Uh, so that was going to be my last day on the street, probably, more than likely. And, and, and then, too, see, I'm, I'm still young in my mind. You know, I don't really, you know, I don't really understand a lot, a lot of stuff. You know, uh, I was smarter than I was uh, uh, when I went to prison, but I was nowhere near at the level that, that I was going to be on. So now you go in, you get out, you get life, you start reading, studying law, and this is when you realize the whole three strike and you negotiate and you, did you represent yourself to get out of it or did you have somebody else? No, I had, a, I had a lawyer. You had a lawyer? I had a lawyer. What uh, point did you know where he says, I, th I think I can get out of this? Uh, it was probably after about three years of being in, and uh, we were getting ready to um, to get sentenced. And I told my lawyer, I was like, "Look, man, you know, uh, well, I felt first we felt that that, that we were going to get the whole. We should have got my whole case should have been reversed, because you know Danilo Blando had an illegal green card that the jury never knew about. I felt that had the jury known that his green card was bogus, that one of the agents forged his green card." Uh, could have made a big difference in front of the jury. Uh, but, you know, the appeals court and everybody said it, it wouldn't have made a difference, you know. Uh, but technically, he shouldn't have never been allowed to testify. 
He should never been allowed to testify. No, no, because he shouldn't have been allowed to, to do the setup. The law states that if you are a alien that's convicted of a drug crime, you must be deported. Not that you can be deported, you must be deported. Can the government, through immunity, give him the freedom to say it's okay, we're not going to deport They can. You. They can. The Attorney General or the President of the United States. Those two. Only ones. Interesting. Happens all the time, though, with these immunity deals. Very interesting deals. They break the laws, their own laws. Right, the but the only person that can allow him legally are those two people. Hmm. Not an INS agent, not the chief of INS. So not who's the, the president in the late 90s? Uh, Bill Clinton was. Bill Clinton was. He didn't do it. Gen Attorney General did it. She didn't do it either. Then who did? A D agent, an uh, INS agent, forged his green card. How do you know that? Well, we got a tip. My lawyer was in his hotel room, so an INS agent calls him and says, uh, Mr. Finster, I got some information for you. I don't like what they did to Rick. I think what they did to him was wrong, and I got some information for you. So uh, my lawyer said, what you got? He said, well, I don't really know what they did to get this green card, but it was illegal. He said, it's almost impossible to get a green card for a convicted felon, especially somebody who has sold as many drugs as he has sold. I think he, they, they convicted him for over 10,000 kilos of cocaine. So um, when my lawyer get this call, the next day we go to court, we're going to trial. This is doing trial. And what year is this? What, what? Uh, 96. 96. Now we should have had this information in Brady versus Merlin. Brady versus Merlin is saying that the government's supposed to turn over any information that's favorable to my defense. You know, if it makes the cop look bad, make the informant look bad, they're supposed to turn it over to us. But they haven't turned anything over to us. They hadn't told us how he got his green card or none of that. So we go to court, so my lawyer, we sitting in court and my lawyer's telling me about it. Man, I get this strange call last night from this guy. Weird call. You know, my lawyer, he's, you know, he's straight by the book, one of those bookers. And he was like, um, this guy tells me that uh, Danilo shouldn't have a green card. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, you want me to question him about it? I said, yeah, ask him about it. Let's see what happened. I said, you know, I'm looking for anything. I'm drafting for straws. I'm in the middle of the ocean. Boat went sure, down. of course. <laughs> so he starts to question uh, uh, Chuck Jones, the DA agent, about it. How did this guy get a green card? Oh, I don't know how he got his green card, but I know it was done right, but never committing. Oh, I didn't do it. Uh, INS agent Tellis handled all of the green card stuff, and and my lawyer he he blew it. Cause he, he blew it. He blew it. He should have put Tellis on the witness stand. Had he put Tellis on the witness stand, Tellis would have lied. Tellis would have got on the witness stand and told him, and told the people that, uh, oh yeah, I did the green card right. Everything was done to the letter of the law. And then when Why we didn't he do it? Why didn't he put him on the witness stand? I don't know. He thought that. Um, he thought that the jury saw the conflict and the, 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 the non-direct answers by the DA agent and that that would be enough for them to, to have some doubt. But after we know, because we got a hearing about the whole thing. We came back and the chief of INS came in and Tellus' supervisor came in. Oh no, Tellus told me that the guy's green, the, the, Tellus never told me that the guy had a conviction. Because his, his supervisor signed off. 
So had the supervisor did his job and went through all the paperwork, he would have known that the guy was a convicted felon. He never would have gave him a green card. But by him knowing Tellis had been an agent for all these years, he said that he knew that Tellis knew that a convicted felon couldn't get a green card. Got it. But now it's his word against Tellis's word. And so then you get you, you end up getting how much time for that? You get twenty. You get life. I get life. And then you somehow, some way, you get yourself out of it. The three strikes. I beat the three strike law. You beat the th three strikes law. You're out. How much time did you end up doing on the second time around? 14 years in like seven months, 18 months, eight months, something like that. 14 years, seven, eight months. Yeah. Now, at this point of your life, how certain are you the CIA was involved in the whole thing in the 80s? Well, at that, I mean, when it first, when, you know, when the story first came out, I didn't really, I didn't really give Gary's story much credibility. You know, I was like, ah. It was only after uh, I started to dig and, and do the research and um, Danilo's green card and just, you know, all the stuff surrounding it, you know, like, how did this guy get caught with 10,000 keys and do 28 months in prison? You know, when they got guys that got caught with two, two uh, ounces that's doing life without that's the right. possibility of parole. Uh, how did this all work, you know? And, and um, I guess the really convincing point for me was when the CIA did their uh, they report and they said that, uh, yeah, we knew these guys were selling drugs. Yeah, we filed a report, asking Attorney General that we not have to uh, report them to law enforcement uh, that I knew that Gary was on to something. Didn't Director of CIA show up to Crenshaw or L.A. or something like that? He, he came Chico to Chico called him out. He, called, he came to Lock High School. Yeah, he came they, to... They, they did a town hall meeting where he, he, uh, he said that he was going to be getting to the bottom of it. And, uh, did the people believe him? Did they, no, did they well, you know, that's when Chico confronted him. You know, Chico told him something like, well, you saying that you guys don't know if he was involved, but you sent a letter to our judge telling our judge that you knew absolutely that he wasn't involved, and we're going to be getting sentenced Monday um, on the premises that he wasn't involved, and now you're telling the people that you don't know if he was involved or not. Which was it? You know, it was like a double standard. Uh, yeah, Chico, he said, I'm facing seven and a half, and you're facing life. Right. Yeah. I was, I was just impressed that he showed up. I just don't know if the people trusted him. If you're sitting there saying, well, they maybe didn't, it's, They didn't trust they him. They didn't trust him. No. Yeah. I think that was, I mean, they gave it to him that day. They gave it I to him. I bet they'll they never do that again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so with, with, when you got the news with Gary, how did you react when the whole suicide? Oh, he shot himself in the head twice, you know? I've never heard of anybody shooting themselves in the head twice. No, when you me got the either. news, what did you say? Oh, well, you know, I was doing a documentary with, with Kevin Booth. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Kevin's from Texas, too. Matter of fact, Kevin is the guy that introduced me to uh, uh, Alex Jones. And Kevin was doing a, a documentary called The Great White Hope, and uh, he wanted me to be in the documentary. So we, we had been talking for about, mm, about a month on that documentary. And uh, in jail, you know, you only get 15 minutes on the phone. So my 15 minutes was up that hour. And so I was waiting on the next 15 minutes to come. And when that 15 minutes came, I called Kevin so we could resume our, our conversation. And uh, that's when he told me that uh, what had happened to Gary. Uh, I was totally blown away, couldn't believe it. Um, it was just like strange for me, like, you know, how could somebody who such a champion for justice you know, how could he be gone like that, you know, and, and 
he was in the middle of his life work, I guess, uh, what, what I would call it. Did um, anybody investigate it or no? Did anybody pursue to see, you know, who it was, anything like that, or not really? I don't, I don't really know. Um, I think people were fast to, to, to have it done with, you know, to be over it and, and to be gone to, to the next, uh, to the next thing. And, and, um, I know the government was definitely, uh, glad that, um, uh, that Gary wasn't around. I mean, Gary, Gary was, he, he, I mean, not just what he did with that case. I mean, Gary did so many great articles and, and things for, for society. He did. He put, but even Michael Levine told him, he says, listen, I don't think this is a good idea when they went on Montel Williams and the whole thing took place. Oh, yeah. Levine told him, says, I don't think you're doing the right thing right now because it's too much exposure. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, guy ends up shooting himself twice. You know, at this point, the one question I, I do want to ask you is the following, and this be the last topic I want to kind of talk before we get into your book and some of the projects you're doing. So I grew up in Iran, okay? I lived there 10 years. You know, when I talk to other people in Iran who experience war being bombed on the fears, the anxiety, that always stays. The whistling sound when you watch the movies, you have flashbacks because mm -hmm. I come from that world. Two years, uh, I live in Germany at a refugee camp. My parents split up. My parents get a divorce. I don't see my dad for a year and a half. Then I come to Glendale, California, and I see my dad once every other week for one day. So I saw him two, day, two days a month for, for six years. Then I joined the army, I didn't see him for two and a half years. And then I saw my friends going back and forth. And a lot of times people ask me, they say, Pat, how come you didn't become a drug dealer, drug addict, all, that, all this other stuff? My, uh, one of my best friends became the biggest drug dealer, biggest uh, seller of, uh, of pot in Glendale. Uh, I go to the army, I come back, this guy's like, <laughs> we, we get in a car one day, literally we're in a car one in his black Mustang. We're driving the car, me and him and a friend of ours, Devine. If he's watching this, he would remember this. <laughs> this Z4 BMW shows up right next to us, red light, okay? We're on Las Phillies. And the guy goes like this, light to light. We race. He beats him. The guy shows a badge. My buddy gets pissed. He says, pull over the car. The cop realizes who he is. He runs off. He chases him down. Pulls him over in the middle of Five Freeway, you know, Five Freeway, right by the, um, uh, right by the Dodger Stadium, if you know the old Griffith Park yeah. right there. Pulls him over right there. Gets out of the car. I said, what are you doing? I'm on, on vacation from Army. I'm on leave. <laughs> he goes and spits on the guy's face. He's like, I'll turn your kids into drug addicts if you ever do that to me ever again. The cop takes us to 7-Eleven, buys him every, says, what can I get you? Gives him a card. Whatever you need, I'll take care of you. I mean, I vividly remember this, right? Yeah. <laughs> vividly remember this. And I, I go back and I say, what the hell happened the last nine months since I went to the Army? What happened to you? You were a 3.5 GPA kid. And I go back to see what made him turn, mm. right? Yeah. So for you, my community is Middle Eastern. I grew up with Latinos, African-Americans. I joined the Army. In the Army, I got along with African-Americans and Latinos because I, I kind of feel like we're minorities, right. right? Right. And then now I'm in insurance. It's a Caucasian industry, <laughs> and I'm from Iran, so it's kind of conflicting. But I ask you, you've seen a lot. You grew up in L.A., you grew up in Crenshaw. It's the, it's the pinnacle, right? What, what do you see being the solution for helping a lot of this crime, gangs, drugs? What, what do you see being a way to find a way to minimize it? Economics. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, when, when you have people who, who can't, can't sustain 
um, a basic living, um, rent, food, shelter, clothes, maybe a car. When you don't have those elements to be possible, then you allow the mind to wonder and try to figure out ways to accomplish those goals. Um, I don't think drug dealers are, 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 are bad people at all. And I know a lot of people, I said that one time and somebody went, went crazy on me. I don't, I, don't think any, I don't think they are either. I don't think, uh, 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 I see them as, uh, you know, you have an opportunity. They're just entrepreneurs. They're just trying to make money. Yeah, they saw but an opportunity. I want to see the seed because for me, trying to process an issue, you know, this is, the drug dealing is the final product. Right. You know, that's the results of, so I want to know the seed. I want to know the seed, what happened here. This is what I want to know. And you're in that world, so. Well, he wants to be, he wants to be a, a member of society. He wants to be somebody of means, somebody that gets respect, you know, just like everybody else. I mean, everybody, we, we all literally almost seek the same things in life. Uh, some of us take different avenues to get there, and, and sometimes that, those avenues become circumstances that happen in your life, you know, like with you. I mean, who, who introduced you to insurance for the first person? Met a girl named Janvier. We were at Venice Beach. Her and I started dating. She picked me, picked me up in a different car all the time. <laughs> I was trying to be a bodybuilder. I just got out of the Army. I was broke. I was making uh, uh, four seventy-five an hour, five twenty-five an hour, and... You know, I said, what do you do? She said, I work on Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. I said, I want to be able to work there. She said, you need a degree, you can't. So then eventually I got a job at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter six months later, day before 9-11. Hmm. And that's how I got into, I got my series seven, 66, 31, 26, life and health. And a life went that direction. And that same way with me, that's the way I started selling cocaine, that's the way I started selling weed, uh, with weed. Uh, when I got off parole, you know, um, I was getting eviction notices at my house because I wasn't selling enough books and t-shirts. Uh, to sustain, you know, the lifestyle that I, that I was living. And uh, one of my friends came over and he was like, man, they're having this big convention at, uh, at uh, San Bernardino Fairgrounds and it's, it's a weed convention. You ought to come, man. You all parole now. Loosen up, man. And, and what, I, what I noticed at that time is that I hadn't even saw the weed industry. I never calculated on myself being in the weed industry when I, when I was in prison. It was the furthest thing from my mind. Do you think you're going backwards? If you go back, go back into cannabis today? You don't think you're going back to the same thing? No, I don't think so. I, I, I look at cannabis as, as uh, uh, cannabis is a, is, is a benefit for us. Uh, it has uh, medical benefits. Um, it, it puts people in a space of, of peace, you know. Uh, I mean, if you ever get a chance, you got to go to one of those, one of those uh, cannabis events. And, I mean, everybody there is just so peaceful and happy, you know, and, 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 and loving. Um, I'm not questioning cannabis. I'm not, I had a marijuana debate a month ago. I brought the commander of U.S. Navy intelligence, and I brought the developmental director from normal. Is that is it normal? <laughs> and I had him debate right here. It was an hour and a half debate, intense debate, back and forth. So you understand marijuana already? I understand marijuana, but I'm not talking about marijuana. I'm talking about you and marijuana. I'm well, I'm no different about, than nobody else, though. No, but I'm talking about you You know the next level and how much more the profits can be. Don't you think for you it's more playing with fire than the average guy? Oh, no. You no. don't think so? Mm -mm. I would never go back to selling cocaine, no why, matter what why, happened. Why do you say that? 
because I only sold cocaine because I had no other avenue. Of making money. Of making money. I was stuck. But don't you think you could have been a sales manager and put a team together and gone selling like But I didn't know that at the time. Can you can you can you imagine if you have somebody who who think that they're dumb, stupid, they think they're a gangbanger, they think they're a thief? You you thought that you thought all those things about yourself? Absolutely. But you're incredible in math. Yeah, but I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that you could be incredible in math and and um I didn't know I was incredible with people. That I, I mean, I had, at, at that time, I probably had about 15, 20 guys that followed me everywhere I went. If but, I said to do something, they would go and do it. Yeah, you say, it's, what if you grew up in uh, Beverly Hills 90210, 15 miles away from Crenshaw, okay? 18 miles away, whatever the number is, 18 miles away. To I a completely you. different family. I would have been a different person. You would have been a different person. Absolutely. So th when you're going back to economics, so going back to some of these communities, Pick Crenshaw, mm -hmm. pick Southside Chicago, pick some parts of New York, pick some parts of Miami, pick some parts of uh, even Dallas here. You know, there, there's some bad areas in Dallas right. here as well. I come here and speak too. I yeah. spoke in Dallas. There, there's there's a uh, real good yeah. guys here uh, in Dallas. Uh, Oak Cliff. Yeah, Oak yeah. Cliff. That's that's right. So, what what can what can the community and the government do to inject hope in those areas? Anything? Well, we, we got we to gotta offer opportunities. You know, people, people, when they don't have opportunities, they get hopeless. And, you know, a hopeless person, they don't care if they live or die. You know, when you got somebody who, 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 who don't know if they're going to have a place to sleep, they don't know if they're going to have food, you know, they don't have a girlfriend, uh, 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 they don't have family members that care about them, then they, they get hopeless. You know, and, and I, I think so much centers around, I mean, just look at like the guy who just did the shooting the other day, he just lost his job. They don't think that that had any uh, uh, effect on him committing the crime that he committed. Uh, uh, absolutely, because when you, when you feel hopeless, then you don't care about yourself, so you can't care about anybody else. And, and I think that that's the same thing that, that our kids are, are going through uh, uh, right now in, in, in these areas. And that's why I do my job right now. Let me ask you this. Take, take the bottom 20 worst communities in the U.S., okay? Okay. Take bottom 20. I want to hear what you're going to say about this. Bottom 20. It's a required reading to read those three books before fifth grade. Absolutely. Let's just say we do that. And let's do the math for those kids. Bottom. It's 100,000 kids. Let's just say it's a small number, 100,000 kids. If they were required to read Richest Man in Babylon, Think and Grow Rich, as a man think it, right? Right. Before sixth grade, if they were required to read that, you think how big of a difference you think it would have made percentage-wise? Tremendous, tremendous. What is tremendous on 100,000 percentage-wise? Probably 90%. You think that big of a number? I think so. That's a big number you're talking about. So, so let me ask you, how come our politicians aren't recommending kids to read books? Well, how, come, how come we're not recommending some of these books for us to read? Well, a lot of them don't really know the community. They never go in the community. We have people making decisions for us that has never been in the community. Like, we have people who make laws that have never been to a jail. Like, how can you tell how much time a person should spend in prison when you've never been to the prison? You don't know what it's like to go to prison. They never come to our communities. They never get out to 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 you think meet. you have to go to jail to be able to know how to influence you? No. I mean, it's kind of like saying... I'm a gynecologist, but I'm a man, I've never had a kid. The, the reason why I don't want to use that is because they'll use that as an excuse. 
What I'm saying is, why aren't they creating opportunity? Myself, okay, I'm a math kid. at a 1.8 GPA in high school, okay? If I was in your community, I'm probably running with you. Right. But I, my savior was Army. Because a guy named Jesus Guerron came and told me, he says, you're headed towards that side, part of your life. <laughs> and he signed me up for the Army. I went to the Army, life changed. Right. I was working at Burger King. I'm like a regular guy doing nothing, <laughs> right? But the reason why I ask that is, I'm trying to see, one, I rarely ever hear any campaign, any politician talk about, let's have our kids read the right books. They don't, they don't, I totally agree. I mean, even, even my book, I've had teachers read my book and they ask me, why am I so blunt in my book? And I said, because our kids are tired of BS. We've been BSing them all their life. Don't do this, you yeah. can't do that. This is good for you, that's bad for you. And then when they come up, and like I told you before, most people who start to use drugs, I did a survey, I, I, I was in, uh, I just left Kansas City last week, and I spoke at a couple schools, alternative schools, and I asked all the kids in the schools, who introduced you to drugs the first time? Guess how many said a stranger? How many? None. Come on. Not one. Everybody said, oh, my brother, my father, my auntie, my sister, my cousin. Now, wow. one person said that some strange guy came up and introduced me to the drugs. It's not going to happen. It's usually somebody you love, somebody you trust. What's your point, though? The point is, is that our influences is the reason that we do most of the things that we do. So do we go to the influencers to help them, or do we go to the kids? Well, we go to both. We, we, we attack both. How do you help the influencers? How do you help the kids? Well, most of the influencers got involved with drugs because they wanted to, what? Economics. Make some money. Yeah. They wanted to make some money. Sure. They got hooked on the drugs because they experimented with it. So if we can help them become financially stable, where they now feel good about themselves, where they feel that their life matters, because most of them don't feel like their life matters. Sure. Nobody cares about my life. My life is, is worthless. Then they can start to also influence the people that they normally uh, introduce to drugs. But uh, What are your thoughts about the fatherless kids? I mean, you know, the stats you hear about from the Census Bureau. Definitely have an effect. I was a fatherless kid. In prison, 65% of the guys don't have fathers. In prison? In prison. 65%. And it's about the same number for the ones who can't read. So there's a di direct parallel to not having knowledge and going to prison. Uh, I did a radio show, I was in St. Louis about, about four or five years ago and I was doing a radio show and the guy that was doing the show with me, uh, he had did a survey on the people who got killed in St. Louis. You know, St. Louis at that time was I think leading the country in murder rates and, and he wanted to know why. So he did a survey. He said all the guys that got, all the people that had got killed that year none had a high school diploma. So what that told me was not being smart was a direct uh, connection to you being killed. So you having a father figure growing up with you, you would have been, you would have possibly been a whole different human being. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Anybody, I mean, because my whole, my whole thing is that I was looking for, I was looking for knowledge. I, I wouldn't have took cocaine if I wasn't looking. You know, I would have missed it. But I was looking for an opportunity to, um, 
to build myself on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, Don Lemon once said uh, from CNN, more than 72% of African-American birds are out of wedlock, is what he said. Wow. 72%, that's a big number right there. How much you think values and principles plays a role? Oh, to oh man, values and principles are, are, are the keys. You know, if you got values and principles, then you can do anything. But without those values and principles, then you'll do anything the other way. You know, Chris Rock, is it Chris, Chris Rock, the comedian one time, he's telling this joke. He says, you know, the one thing about men and women, you know, the media is trying to make women say, you don't need men, you can be independent, all this other stuff. He says, go try raising a kid and you go tell your boys what to do. Then let the father say something. Immediately, <laughs> listen. He was obviously telling a joke about it. Yeah, well, you know, women are, are a little, because I got two babies now that, that I'm raising and uh, women are, are lighter on their kids than men are. You know, a man is more firmer, more stiffer and 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 you know he's probably going to be the, the breadwinner you know usually the male is, is the breadwinner so when you don't have that person to teach you how to bring in the bread then you become lost and not knowing how to bring in the bread and when you run so into true. the male figure yeah. uh, the, the other thing too you know like when when you're growing up in the ghetto the first the first entrepreneur that the most black kids Spanish kids are going to meet in the ghetto, entrepreneur is a drug dealer, you know, mm -hmm. and then the next one might be a robber, a car thief, yeah. a pimp, you know, these are the, are the role models. I, I, when, when I was sitting in prison one day and, 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 and I was just playing with my mind and, and I was saying, what if they would have had an a, a IQ test on criminality? You know, how well would I have scored? Because all the crimes that I hadn't committed, I knew how to commit them because guys in the neighborhood had told me how to do it. Wow. So uh, when you look at the career choices that, 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 that our people are having, um, you know, a lot of times they feed our kids BS. And then you top that. Um, That's a good point. It's not like you're not willing to learn. It's just what's being fed to you to process in your mind. Exactly. And then we're, we're letting street dudes outwork the, the people that's supposed to be teaching. You know, most teachers don't want to be there. You know, they want to be somewhere else. You know, I really want, I, I, I spoke at a, at a school in LA and, and I did a survey. I spoke to all teachers. It was all teachers conference. I asked, I, asked, I spoke to the kids and then I told, uh, I told the principal, I said, man, I, I want to talk to your teachers too because your teachers have to have that concern for the kids that a artist has for his art and a lot of times these teachers don't have it and, and when I did the survey with the teachers I was asking them I was like what was your first choice of career did you did you did you want to be a teacher and most of them didn't want to be teachers they're just doing teacher teaching until they get to the point to where they can go to their next field and if you have these type of pe people, if you got somebody that, that want to be a rapper or a singer and they teaching your kids, or your kids getting that undivided, it's like when I go teach, I teach tennis. Until today? Yeah, right now today, I, I taught tennis this summer to kids for free, just because I love it, you know what I'm saying? I, 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 I mean, you're glowing right now just talking about it. My partner, who was on my tennis team with me, it's his camp, but he said that he saw the kids give me something that they don't give him. 
and he recognized it was behind my passion that I put in it. You know, like I put my tennis shoes on, I go out there and hit balls with him. Yeah. He do a little bit, but not, not to the point. Like mm. when I hit balls with him, I'm hustling like they should be hustling. And people have a tendency, they recognize that. Our kids recognize that, like I really care about you. You know, I really love you. And, and if they don't feel the same way, you know, they go to class and they go home and they tell, I don't like my teacher don't like me. You know, once they say that, then that teacher can You know, it's crazy you're saying this. Let me tell you, I got three kids, okay? My oldest, since the day he was born, he was serious. He's, he's three months old. This is his pictures. <laughs> he would mad dog everybody. I'm like, what is wrong with your kid? He'd look at everybody like, let's just say he just met you. This yeah. is what he would do to you. He just looked at you. I said, that's not appropriate. You can't look at people like that. So he's getting older. Nothing's changed till today he's serious. So he goes to kindergarten. To this teacher he has. I'm not going to say the name, but so every day the teacher says, your son is not this. Your son is not good at this. Your son is not good at this. Your son's not good at this. All this stuff. By the end of the year, she recommends out of the eight kids for seven to be held back one year. Your son is not ready to go to first grade. And I said, I'm sorry. Yeah, your son's not ready to go to first grade. So one day I sit down with her. I said, let me ask you a question. You have eight students. Seven of them you're allowing to stay back. One of them you're advancing is your grandkid, right? Because mm -hmm. you know who I'm talking to. He says, yes, I do. I said, do you know how to lead creative kids? Or do you just know how to lead people who follow your orders? Is this private school that we're paying three, four, five thousand dollars a month able to lead private uh, creative kids? Right, right. She didn't have an answer. So I go to the principal. I tell the principal. I said, this is the worst teacher I've ever seen in my life. A teacher like this can hurt a kid because a kid can think he has problems. One day my son comes here, right here. I have the picture. We should put this picture up, by the way. He comes right here. My wife says, he, he's got a seal. So <laughs> I don't know what's going on with it. He thinks he has problems because the teacher, teacher told him you're different. So he comes to me, sits here, says, Daddy, everybody tells me I'm different. Everybody tells me I'm different. I said, of course you're different. Your daddy's different. Buddy, mm. we're different. We're the same but you don't want to be like everybody. No. That's why we're special. He cries, and my wife is sitting there crying emotion. She took a picture and she caught it. And we're both crying together in that moment. Then next year, my son, we keep him in the, in the school. Next year, he has this other teacher. During that year for that teacher's class, one of the classmate girls gets cancer, dies at six years old. Kid dies at six years old. The other kid gets cancer. She goes on chemo for three, four months. This teacher gets Teacher of the Year Award. She changed my kid's life. She understood how to deal with a creative kid. One teacher almost screwed his thinking at that age, thinking he has problems. The other kid says, no, you got gifts. The other teacher. I think one had hated teaching. Right. The other one loved teaching. Goes back to what you're talking about with tennis. Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting you're saying with the points you're making with the challenge being teachers. You know, to wrap it up, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, Calvin Obutz, Calvin Otis Obutz. Remember Reverend Calvin Obutz, the guy that came out and said, we're not against rap, we're not against rappers, but we are against those thugs. Do you remember that whole? I don't remember. And then, yeah. you know, uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony put it in the song, it's the thuggish, ruggish bone that oh, started yeah. at the beginning. So that was the beginning of the pastor. So based on what you're saying, my biggest thing is, prior to somebody becoming a thug, man, they were a regular kid that have the ability to do so much big. And based on some of the ideas you got, I can only imagine what things would happen 
if people applied some of these ideas. Last thing to do with you, speed round. I'm going to give you a name. You tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Okay? <laughs> I tell you a name, you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, Arthur Ashe. Great. Officer Robert Juarez. Corrupt. <laughs> Tupac. A genius. Ronald Reagan. Thug. Gary Webb. Humanitarian. Humanitarian. Yes. Bill Clinton. Mm, I don't know. Jury's out on Bill. Jury's out on Bill. Okay. <laughs> Oliver North. Uh, a patriot. Rapper Rick Ross. Fraud. Obama. Politician. <laughs> 25-year-old Rick Ross. Lost. Danilo Blandin. Lost. Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar. Rich, <laughs> powerful. Rich. Rich and powerful. Rich and powerful. Maxine Waters. Courageous. Courageous. Daniel Ortega. Mm, Daniel Ortega. I guess he was a patriot. He was a patriot. Daniel Ortega. Man, it's interesting seeing talking to you because, uh, you know, you have experiences that people don't have and you can give perspective from a standpoint where everybody can get smarter to know how we can make a difference in a lot of kids' lives so they can take a complete different direction in their lives. So I appreciate you opening up your book. Um, we're going to put links below to your book. Okay. As well as you got some real cool shirts you sell out. I love what Rogan did, man. A lot of respect for Joe. Oh, Shout man. out to Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, Joe he ends up uh, selling the shirts. He wears it. You know, the real Rick Ross is not a rapper. Do you still sell that shirt or no? Still. It's still today. It's yeah, a classic. Let's put a picture of it up. You know, the real Rick Ross doesn't sell. You know, they, they counterfeit that shirt. Who did? People on the internet. Really? It's being counterfeited. Yeah. Well, so, we're going to sell so I'm yours. Like, I'm like Nike. That's <laughs> a compliment. Yeah, it's a compliment. You well, know we're going to put yours below for people to be able to buy. When you get counterfeited, you know you can't. You made it when you get counterfeited. <laughs> so, Freeway Rick Ross, uh, appreciate you flying out no, here. Thank and, uh, you. Be willing to open up and uh, be a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you for uh, allowing me this opportunity and speaking to you was um, from a total different perspective. You know, uh, so often people, um, you come in and you talk to people and they just go over the same things over and, oh, you sold drugs. And it's like, this thing is more complicated than that, you know. Uh, a lot of people, they want to blame me for the drug problem, but then I say, well, maybe you might have to blame Mike, the guy that put it on the table for me the first time. And, and then you could even go even deeper than that and say, well, maybe we're going to blame the guys that made Superfly because that's what seed the first. That's a whole different conversation, man, because movies have such a big impact on rap, kids. Rap, 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 so much be talked about about that you know where our kids are getting their influences from and then you know it's, it's so funny I know we're getting ready to wrap up but you know I go to school sometime and I want to speak to our kids and, and they won't allow me they don't want our kids to get that experience you know what it was like and how you got started and who's going to introduce you to drugs and because now your kid is running around say when your kid is running around and he thinking oh it's going to be some strange monster that's going to come up and introduce me to drugs but then it's his uncle or his brother, wow. or his cousin, you know, somebody that he genuinely cares about, or his best friend at school, you know, somebody that's the macho man, you know, whoever, whoever it is, but it's not the way that they're being taught, so they're not prepared for 
that conversation that's going to come. You know, you're not prepared for when your uncle offers you drugs. You know, you're prepared for when this monster comes up, this guy in the park who you never saw before and he got a hood over his head. He comes in and he's like, hey, little boy, I got something for you. He's probably going to run because that's how we teach our kids. Don't talk to strangers. But now when Johnny, his best friend at school, he walks to school with every day, whose uncle just turned him on, and he didn't know no better. Now Johnny, who don't see the effects yet, because it takes a while for the effects to come, he automatically, he turns your son on. And that's what's happening to our kids. Well, I'm hoping the right people watch this, man. I'm hoping the right people because the whole basic thing about the right books can change people's lives. It did it to you, did it to me, man. I oh, read, absolutely. I read 15, 1,600 books, completely changed my life. I mean, you see the bookshelf over there. I'm a, I don't have a four-year degree. I don't have a two-year degree. Somebody simply, my sister recommended me how to influence and influence people. And I read Robbie, that one, too. Robbie Solomon recommended me how to master the art of selling by Tom Hopkins. And for me, I got addicted. I said, I cannot believe this information is in books. And the rest is history. That's what I said, too, when I started reading Brother, again, thanks for coming out, man. Truly, really enjoyed it. Thanks oh, for coming out. All man. mine, all mine. It, yes. was, it was wonderful. Likewise. Take Thank care. you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.